Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Michael Brown. That's right. That's my full name. That's the legal one. Uh, and across the table from me is Matthew Stockton. Hello. How are you today, Matthew? Very focused on this episode. Good. Me too. I feel... Uh, I want to do a good job for Valerie and Colin. I do too. Uh, they have been so kind. Let's carry on. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. On February 22, 2002, a vehicle was found in the ditch off the Trans-Canada Highway near Boston Bar, an unincorporated community in the Fraser Canyon of the Canadian province of British Columbia. The car had been knocked off the road and become stuck. The vehicle was registered to 61-year-old grandmother, mother to three, and recent great-grandmother, Diana Russell, who was then living in Kelowna, British Columbia. Diana's person ID were in the car, but there was no sign of Diana. After being notified of the incident, police in Kelowna knocked on Diana Russell's door the next day, but receiving no answer, they left. On hearing that a police car had been in her mother's driveway, Diana's daughter Michelle called police again. She was unable to get in touch with Diana and was worried. Michelle gave the RCMP a key to Diana's home and they went inside. In the basement, they found Diana's partially clothed body underneath some mattresses and furniture. She'd been hogtied, raped, beaten, and strangled. 
Police quickly determined that Ronald Leal Fowler was a person of interest in the murder. Fowler, father of one of Diana's grandchildren, after a brief relationship with Michelle, Diana's eldest daughter, was an ex-con who'd been living in a Kelowna halfway house at the time of the murder, but since the killing, he was conspicuously missing. Ronald Fowler was later dramatically captured in Vancouver. He was then charged and, in 2006, finally was convicted of first-degree murder in Diana's death. Fowler was subsequently sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. To people reading the news sites, that's often the end of the story, but it isn't really the end. Diana Russell's family has been fighting to keep Fowler in prison. However, recently, he has been given more and more freedom through his graduated parole applications. This has again opened the family's yet unhealed wounds caused by his horrific actions in 2002. You're listening to Dark Poutine episode 235, The Murder of Diana Russell, part 1. I learned about this case in a post by Colin Luxinger, a member of our Facebook group, The Umberyard. Colin, Diana Russell's grandson, was 12 years old at the time of Diana's murder. His post was about a recent development in Ronald Fowler's graduated release from prison. Fowler, in Colin's words, has been allowed, quote, supervised outings to work on his, quote, personal development. Colin has understandably been struggling with angry feelings about Fowler and says his ultimate goal is forgiveness and to release the anger, to be free of it. I reached out to Colin to offer the possibility of a dark routine episode to bring some attention to his grandmother's case, much like in the case of Lynn Duggan in dark routine episodes 93 and 94. Colin thought it was a good idea and asked his mom, Valerie McPherson, about it. She sent me scores of attachments that have informed this episode's research in ways that gives us unique perspectives into the immediate aftermath of murder from within a victim's family. As well, we learn firsthand how with every court date and later parole applications, the pain continues. Colin will join us for an emotional interview in the second half of episode two of this two-part series on his grandmother's murder. I'm grateful to Valerie and Colin for sharing all the information they've gathered and written about since Diana's death. Thank you, and you can be sure the Dark Poutine family stands solidly with you. Matthew and I hope we do Diana's memory, and I hate to use this word, justice. One of the things I discovered in my research was a brief autobiography written by Diana and shared with her family. Valerie later shared it on Facebook and with me as well in the notes that she forwarded me. I will share the autobiography as a starting point to give us all an idea of the kind of person Diana, a Métis of French and Indigenous heritage, was, and who her family and the rest of us lost. In some quotes, I've made very minor edits for flow and clarification of information. However, I have done my utmost to maintain the integrity of the story as Valerie and Colin have shared it with me. I was born Diana Delia Lefebvre in a francophone farming community in northern Saskatchewan at my maternal grandmother's home. My grandfather built the school where I went for the first six years. It was a two-story building with grades 1 to 6 in the lower level and 7 to 12 in the upper level that I thought was the reason it was called high school. (laughs) My stubble jumping started soon after this. What is stubble jumping? Some of you may ask. Well, the stubble is what's left in the fields after harvest. 
This is about five inches of dry stalk sticking out of the ground. My brother, two years my age, being an expert at attending school, convinced me that we could save time by cutting across the fields. Girls wore dresses at this time, so when I got to school, my ankles were scratched and bleeding. It was pointed out to me that if you hopped over some of the stubble, then I would not have to suffer so many scratches. So I guess she started hopping from that day forward. An incident I remembered happened at recess. The teacher usually started her day by teaching the first grade and worked her way to the sixth. Since the first grade were permitted recess earlier than the other grades, my cousin and I were the first ones finished our work, so once outside we decided to hide in the outhouse from the other kids. I knew there was one for the boys and one for the girls and had never been in the boys. Immediately, I saw the difference because theirs had a different trough. The teacher found out and was not pleased. Incidentally, as I recall, it was always the boys' outhouse that the girls bounced the softball over when we played Anti-I-Over. I don't know what that game is. Anti. No, neither do I. (laughs) Interesting. If someone knows what Anti-I-Over is, please let us know. Our teachers were bilingual, and I really do not remember learning to speak English. However, until I started school, I thought everyone was French and Catholic. The seasons marked our activities. In fall, there was harvest and then Halloween. After this, we started practicing our annual Christmas concert, which was a big social event, lasting about three to four hours, and was usually held on Friday nights. Wow, could we act, sing, and dance. When we got older, we'd take the horse and cutter to school with hay from our horse. The school had a barn, and we were the last farm kids to take horses to school. After school, we'd tie our friends' sleds to the back and give them rides up and down the main street before going home. In the springtime, we'd pick crocuses and bluebells on our way to school, and on the way home, we'd pick beer bottles, which had been buried for up to six months under the snow. Since I had the biggest school bag, I always carried more than my brother. Spring was also a time that we enjoyed playing our outside games. They included kick the can, lemonade in the shade, tic-tac-toe, and mother may I. The only ones that seemed to have survived are hopscotch and mother may I. We also were involved in sport days and competed against other schools. Summer meant we didn't see our school friends much because of the work we had to do. I usually went to stay with my grandmother in the city for two weeks. Imagine, I could have a real bath in a full-size tub, and the water came out of taps, heated. Sundays also meant big family dinners, held outdoors with 20 to 30 relatives. We'd make tables using sawhorses and sheets of plywood. Summer was also a time for weeding a very large garden, picking wild berries such as highbrush cranberries, Saskatoon berries, and choke cherries. We had running water. That is, we had to run to a well outside for our drinking water, while our soft water for bathing came from a cistern in the basement. In the winter, I helped my mom melt mounds of snow to wash clothes. We did not have electricity until I was 10 years old. We had a wood-burning stove as well as a large coal furnace in the basement, which usually went out at about 3 or 4 in the morning. I learned to get dressed under the covers. Our home entertainment centered around the radio. We'd listen to The Lone Ranger, Roy Rogers, Fibber McGee and Molly, Armis Brooks, to name a few of the programs. We also played cards and Chinese checkers. As teenagers, the main events were Friday and Saturday night dances. Winter was time for visiting relatives and friends, going to house parties, dancing and playing cards. Our mode of transportation was usually by sled, 
and later by caboose that my dad had built. This caboose resembles what later people called bowler trailers, but horses pulled it. It had a wood-burning buck stove in it and also sported a seat from an old car, so we were very comfortable. We thought we were pretty rich. When my dad bought a car, it was kept in our garage for the winter, as this was before antifreeze and plug-ins for electricity. The radiator had to be drained and battery brought in the house and placed behind the wood stove. Otherwise, the liquid would freeze inside. Yeah. After the businesses of beer bottles came the summer enterprise of collecting gopher tails for two cents a tail. Again, usually it was I who went to haul the pails of water from the creek while my brother and dog had to watch the gopher hole. My interest in the medical field may have been influenced by the fact that I was my mother's aide giving enemas to my little brother. Also influential were visits from the Raleigh men who provided us with that miracle cream that was used for cow udders when dry and cracking, as well as for human skin infections. Other home remedies included mustard plasters for chest colds, poultices for infections, olive oil on cotton batten for earaches, and peroxide for stepping barefoot on rusty nails. Cod liver oil was given when we were well. When I was 15, my dad sold the farm and we moved to Prince Albert, which was 30 miles away. What a culture shock. Going from a two-room school with a total of 30 in six grades to 90 in one grade. Not only that, but you had a different teacher for every class and you had to move from room to room. After graduation, I enrolled as a nursing student. After a year, I decided this was not for me, so I applied to train as a medical technology student. I was married soon after my training and had three lovely daughters quite close in age, Michelle, Patty, and Valerie. From my introduction, you know that I have eight grandchildren, and they keep me busy. Since family is very important to me, genealogy is my passion. Other activities include traveling, antique collecting, sewing, crocheting, and trying new recipes. Wow, that what a cool way to grow up. And it reminds me of a bunch of my relatives, too. Uh, yeah, I was, I was sitting here thinking that... Um... You know, I come from farming family as well, mm-hmm. and my mo- my mom went to a one room schoolhouse with an outhouse. You yeah, know, they had a pump for water like this. So, you know, I, it's not very often that we get to hear the, the first like the words in the first person from somebody who's been a victim on the show. No, and this is why I'm so grateful for what Colin and Valerie sent me because we get to hear how Diana felt about her life and uh, and I I get I get a real sense for her and she's. Mm-hmm. She honestly, like she could have been my, my grandma or my mom, right? There's like a Canadian farm girl. Yeah. To to coin a phrase, I don't want to use the cliche too much, but salt of the earth kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. But I find that interesting talking. I remember mustard plasters. I remember hydrogen peroxide for stepping on rusty nails. Sure. That's how I grew up. According to Valerie, Diana had worked for years as a lab technician at Royal Columbian Hospital in New Westminster. She had recently retired and moved to Kelowna to be closer to her daughters and grandchildren. Valerie said that at the time of Diana's murder, she was working on building a better relationship with her and had gone into business with Diana selling nutritional and health-related products made by a company called USANA. Valerie, also a nurse by profession, wonders how successful Diana could have been had her life not been taken so suddenly and violently. Diana Russell was a generous giver. She put countless hours into her work at building out the family tree for her daughters and multiple grandchildren. She donated money to charitable organizations and had been a foster parent. 
What happened to her was absolutely senseless. At the time of Diana's murder, Valerie and her family were then living in Fort McLeod around a two-hour drive south of Calgary. Valerie recalled that it was a cold February evening and that the family had just finished a luscious dinner of Atlantic lobster when she received a frantic phone call from her middle sister, Patty. Patty was beside herself with worry. She said, Val, I don't know what to do. Mom is missing, and they found her car at Boston Bar. Diana was not answering her phone, and she was not with her car when the police found it. Boston Bar was a drive of more than three hours from Kelowna, and at that time of year, the roads are pretty treacherous, and Valerie didn't think that her mother had any reason to drive to that place without having let people know she was making that kind of trip. It was out of character for Diana, and Valerie thought right away that something had to be wrong. Valerie tried to calm Patty down a bit, but didn't feel like she was very successful. After she hung up, she went over various scenarios that would find her mother at Boston Bar, but couldn't come up with anything that made sense. Her ponderings were interrupted when Patty called back, even more upset than before. She still couldn't get in touch with Diana. Patty said, Val, I need you to come soon. The police are at Mom's. I don't know what to do. The police, Valerie was told, had found a body in the basement of Diana's home. The body had not yet been identified, but everyone was assuming that it was Diana Russell. Being winter, what was usually a nine-hour drive between Fort McLeod and Kelowna would probably be closer to 12 hours or more. The roads would be hell, and driving through the night would have been dangerous, especially with the added distraction of concern for a missing loved one being top of mind. Cooler heads prevailed and Valerie's husband, Lyle, booked the first flight out to Kelowna that was scheduled for the next morning from Lethbridge, Alberta, just a 30-minute drive away. Valerie spent the night and the next morning and two-and-a-half-hour flight to Kelowna thinking about what awaited her there. She went over in her head about times she'd struggled in her relationship with her mother. Valerie wrote, quote, During the flight, I was numb and staring out the window, the tears kept falling like a waterfall unable to turn off, wondering what the fuck went on at my mom's. Then I remember saying to my mom when I was young and mad at her, I wish you were dead. It's now haunting my mind, end quote. Those flights are difficult. Uh, they're horrendous, yeah. yeah when, my, when my dad died, I had to fly from the UK, you know, it was an eight-hour flight, so, I, you know, he wasn't murdered. And uh, I can't imagine Valerie being stuck on that flight because it, it, the flight must have felt, like, so long. Yeah, that sort of, like, remembering the horrible things he said, you know, I hope she's let that go because, you know, obviously, you know, I read this script, she's an awesome daughter and she's trying to make sure she keeps her mom's name out there. Yeah. Uh, and, and try to keep this guy under lock. So I hope she let that go. Valerie was relieved to see Janelle waiting for her at the Kelowna airport. Janelle was a family friend who lived in the basement of Sister Patty's place. It was an easy thing for Janelle to offer to retrieve Valerie after her flight from Alberta, especially in light of what was going on. Patty's home was 15 minutes outside of Kelowna. She lived with her husband, Ray, and two children on a property that covered a couple of acres. Valerie didn't want to go right to Patty's, though. She wanted to make a stop at Diana's townhouse to see for herself what was happening there. Janelle drove toward Diana's. Valerie wrote about what she saw next. Quote, Pulling up to the housing complex was like watching a movie. Men dressed in white were in and out of Mom's house. Then I saw the reality. Her body, I assumed, on a stretcher covered in the same white as the police investigators who were wheeling her out. 
end quote. Valerie told one of the RCMP officers that she was Diana's youngest daughter and that she'd just arrived in town. The officer couldn't say anything to Valerie since, as they had yet to determine what had happened, he said the entire family were suspects at that point. Still in shock, but, quote, very controlled, Valerie continued to Patty's. Valerie wrote, quote, This was February, and it was cold and miserable, just like I felt, end quote. Arriving at Patty's house, Valerie found both her sisters, Patty and Michelle, who were already there and both were distraught. They knew their mother was dead, but who would do such a thing and why? Valerie tried to calm her sisters, while Michelle began trying to call her ex-boyfriend and father of her youngest child, a man named Ronald Leal Fowler. Fowler had a criminal history dating back to the 1980s, and most recently was serving a conditional sentence for theft over $5,000, and also had a string of robberies on his record. Michelle couldn't get a hold of him. He was not where he was supposed to be which sent up huge red flags. The halfway house hadn't seen him for a couple of days. The coincidence was too much, and police set about looking for Ronald Fowler, who was in the wind, and now suspect number one in Diana Russell's murder. More after a quick break. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts? This is um, hearing firsthand from Valerie mm-hmm. like this. Is, it's uh, kind of, you know, we've done so many shows where you hear the patterns, like what happens. Yeah. And just to hear it from her sort of really brings that pattern to life. Like this is, this is real, this is real, real. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that too when I was doing the writing around this show, because there's, I hate to say it, but it's like, there's a, like you said, there's a pattern or a formula to every story in which there's a murder. Yeah. There is the the person who gets killed, and then there is the event, and then there's the investigation afterward, et cetera, et cetera. But we never really get a good picture of what's going on inside that person's family, how they're affected by it. And in their head. And yeah. Valerie's done such a good job sort of explaining what was going on in her head. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Valerie spent a few hours with her big sister supporting them, but needed some rest and time away to clear her head before what came next. Valerie asked Janelle to drive her back to Kelowna to a quiet motel. As Kelowna, a summer city frequented by tons of tourists, was a quiet town in the winter, it was easy to find a room at the first place they stopped. Thankfully, Patty, who worked at a marijuana place, had provided Valerie with some weed to help her unwind. And uh, I put in parentheses here, for years before legalization, BC was well known for its marijuana shops that were almost never shut down by police, which was interesting. It was decriminalized. Mm-hmm. Valerie said she had a smoke of the weed as soon as the room's door closed behind her. She wrote, quote, After smoking, I finally broke down, releasing the built-up anxiety from the whole situation. I was very mad and felt anger for the animal who did this to my mom. I was punching and kicking the air, pretending it to be the person who tortured my mom. I had so much anger. I was glad to be by myself. After my tantrum and crying, I unpacked and had another joint and called Lyle, my husband, end quote. Lyle, she said, arrived by car the next evening, having braved the winter roads through the Rockies and into the interior of B.C. Valerie's support was finally there for her. Two days after the murder, Diana's friends 
family and former family were there to help. Even Valerie's ex-husband was there to help as he could. Valerie and Lyle were the family members tasked with identifying Diana's body. Her sisters couldn't do it. She wrote about the horrendous event, quote, With the experience of being a nurse for over 30 years, I'm quite familiar with death and dying. I have seen many deaths and many dead bodies. I'd never seen a murdered victim, though. Due to my life experience, I consider myself a strong person, someone that needs to know the truth, and someone who can handle the truth. When I ID'd Mom at the morgue, her face was swollen and blue. It looked different from what I'd seen before. I'd almost forgotten that this was my mom. Her face looked terrorized, not like others I've seen. Swollen, blue, with bruises. Unfortunately, this is now an image that has been ingrained in my memory. Death is sad. Death is forever. My mom was only 61 and in good health. I know she would have lived to a great old age. It was in her French genes. End quote. Valerie continued. I stroked her hair while crying, stating that I was sorry for all the bad shit I did to her when I was young. I was swearing to her that Fowler will pay, but this is Canada where rapists and murderers get off in 7 to 25 years. When they say life, it's really not. End quote. Oh my goodness. Mm. So, I mean... There's something I noticed there that she said. Mm-hmm. Um, like even former family, even the, her ex-husband came. Yeah. And you just, you realize that when something like this happens, like nothing else matters. Yeah. Right? But but to get out there and to support and to try to help. Even even though you've not had a, a good relationship with that person, maybe not for a long time, but you still... It doesn't matter anymore. No, right? you love them. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of, it completely washes away that stuff. Yeah. And sometimes it's only for the time being kind of thing, but, but at the same time, you get to be a good human to another human being. People come together. Yeah. Valerie vented in the notes she sent me, quote, This animal has been to jail for most of his adult life, end quote. These were her thoughts after identifying her mother. Yeah. She was upset at the time of the murder that he was in a halfway house. A judge had given him a conditional release after serving some time for armed robbery, and Valerie felt she and the family should have sued the parole board for letting him out again. Ronald Leal Fowler was found in Vancouver. After Ronald had raped and murdered Diana Russell, he'd taken off with her car and purse and headed the long way to Vancouver. It was an odd coincidence that seemed to be the universe working to solve Diana's case. A freak snow-slash-mudslide had knocked Diana's car off the road, and Ronald, try as he might, couldn't extricate the car from the ditch. Had he been able to continue, there's no knowing where he might have been able to get to. But fate had other ideas. Ronald started hitchhiking. A truck driver named Kelly saw the abandoned car and the man hitchhiking close by and took pity on him, picking him up. Kelly drove Ronald all the way to Vancouver, another two-and-a-half-hour drive. As they drove, Kelly began to feel something wasn't right with Fowler. His behavior was really odd. As soon as he dropped Ronald off, Kelly called the RCMP and told them about the guy he'd picked up near the abandoned car in Boston Bar. By this time, the word was out over the RCMP network, and they were looking for Ronald Fowler. Kelly's call was a lucky break. When RCMP confronted Ronald Fowler, he put up a fight. It took four cops and a taser to bring him down. 
As soon as they had Ronald, they called Diana's family to let him know that they'd caught him and locked him up. Valerie wrote that Ronald's arrest was a relief to most of the family, but Michelle, the oldest sister, was beside herself. Not only had she had a relationship with Ronald Fowler, she'd brought him into the family and Fowler had fathered her youngest son, Brandon. Now her mother was dead, apparently at his hands, and she had to somehow figure out what to say to her son about the fact that his father had killed his grandmother. She opted not to talk about it, later telling Brandon just that his father had drug problems and was in jail. After the RCMP forensics team was done with their investigation, Valerie and her family were allowed back into Diana's townhouse, and they were there to do the usual cleanup that happens after a family member passes. But these circumstances had an extra edge to them. There'd been no signs of forced entry into Diana's house. The family later assumed that Fowler had helped himself to a set of Diana's house keys. They think it happened when he and Michelle had been house-sitting, watering Diana's plants when she was away in Saskatchewan. So Ronald, who Valerie refers to time and time again as the devil, didn't have to break in at all. He just simply used the key to let himself in. When Valerie and her family first walked into the townhome, they noticed some scuff marks on the wall by the door. Valerie wrote, quote, I realized right away that these marks came from the bottom of Mum's crutches as she tried to defend herself. Mum was recovering from a knee injury and was using crutches after a fall while picking fruit, end quote. She continued, quote, It was an eerie feeling walking into the home of someone who was attacked, tortured, raped, and strangled, especially when it is your mother. Valerie guessed that the RCMP had brought in a cleanup crew after their investigation. She wrote, quote, The urine at the door from Mum when she was attacked was gone. So was a large piece of carpet cut out from downstairs where they'd found her. So he basically pulled her to the basement to do his evil deeds, end quote. Valerie estimated Diana to have been five foot three inches tall and no match for the six foot tall, 250 pound man that viciously attacked her. There were things missing. A set of Diana's car keys, her car and her purse were also gone. We know that Fowler took those when he fled. Diana had a safe deposit box and no one knew where the key was. Something told Valerie to look at the letter holder in the kitchen and when she picked it up, out fell the key for the safe deposit box. Valerie wrote, quote, There was hardly anything in the safe deposit box other than a bag of jewelry that my mom was holding as ransom for a friend to whom she'd loaned $5,000. My sister gave the jewelry back to the woman, although I feel that she shouldn't have. Mom did not have life insurance even though her brother sold it for a living. We'd find out very soon that not only would we be emotionally drained, but financially as well. End quote. There were lots of what Colin and Valerie have called strange things that happened around Diana's death. You know what I mean, like in the old days when you'd pick up the phone to call a friend and they'd already be on the line. The phone hadn't even rung yet. One coincidence came just before Valerie returned to Fort McLeod. Valerie writes that a day before she and her husband left to go back home, she had a revelation. She and her nephew went to Diana's and just before opening the door... Valerie gasped. A realization hit her like a ton of bricks. She hadn't put two and two together when she checked into the motel. She pulled out her motel room key and showed it to her nephew. She then said, look at mom's house number. It was exactly the same number. Perhaps a message from Diana or the universe. It's funny how many meaningful coincidences you see when you're paying attention. 
Yet another strange occurrence was finding an unfilled adoption reunion form among Diana's things. Valerie's sister, Patty, suggested it might be something genealogy-related while tracing their French-Acadian family line. But Valerie, who's naturally curious and sees herself as a determined investigator of things, felt there was more to it. Patty, too, mentioned dreams about having a sibling they were unaware of. Sure enough, they were right. Valerie told her mother's sister about the papers, and the aunt shared a bombshell. Two years before Michelle was born, Diana had another little girl. Diana had been considering contact with that daughter, but had not yet been able to bring herself to fill out the papers to initiate contact. Having been through a reunion myself, I can tell you that initiating contact with a birth family member is a difficult decision. I still have yet to reach out to my own birth father. On her return home, Valerie spent countless hours on adoption reunion sites looking for her sister. All she had was an approximate date, around her own birthday, September 26, two years before her sister Michelle's birth, and her mother's maiden name. A woman's birth name on one site stood out to her, Claudette Lafave. It was a different spelling than Diana's maiden name, but the birth date was the same year and only a day later than she'd assumed. Crossing her fingers, Valerie reached out to the site admins. Sure enough, it was her sister, who had been renamed Jan by her adoptive parents. And in yet another coincidence, Jan was living in Kelowna. Patty and Michelle met with Jan right away. The meeting was bittersweet, as Jan learned she had three sisters, but also learned that the mother with whom she'd not yet reunited was recently murdered. Jan and her family were accepted into Diana's family right away. Valerie and her son Colin talk about this as yet another of those odd coincidences that seem to connect things in a spiritual way. Yes, Diana was gone, taken from the family in a horrendous way, but Jan was a piece of Diana returning to them soon after she'd gone. Valerie wrote, quote, Meeting Jan, I couldn't help noticing that she looked most like mom out of all us girls, even though she had a different dad, end quote. Jan would be at Fowler's pre-trial and his trial for Diana Russell's murder. Just as much as her newfound siblings, she wanted justice for the mother she'd never known, who was so violently brutalized in the safety of her own home. Ronald Fowler was charged with the first-degree murder of Diana Russell. He pleaded not guilty to the crime. Fowler was saying he didn't remember a thing. He claimed that the only thing he could recall the day Russell was killed is doing cocaine, smoking some marijuana, and buying some beer at a Rutland cold wine and beer store. He said that his next recollection was being in the Lower Mainland and meeting an old buddy at a bar. In our next episode, we'll hear more about Diana Russell's family and what they had to endure during Ronald Fowler's trial and some of the painful things they've gone through in the 20 years since they lost the family's matriarch. Yeah, I'm finding it difficult because I know where this is going, right? Mm-hmm. He did it because he's in jail. He stole a car, stole a purse. Yep. Right? Hid all those things. Hitchhiked. But it's like saying that he doesn't remember it. Doesn't remember a thing. But, but, but yet you're running with the stolen car. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And we'll get more into that okay. in the next episode. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 235, The Murder of Diana Russell, part one. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. 
Let's see who called us this week. All right. Here is our first voicemail of the week. Hello, boys. It's your favorite fan from Cape Sable Island, Nova Scotia, here eating her lobster poutine. I got a bit of a cold, boys, so you'll have to forgive me if if I sound a little... I just listened to this week's episode. Very well done. And it was interesting to hear your guys' conversation on the Bible and your takes and, you know, just the well, thorough research, really, that you did. Um, I am a Christian, and sometimes it's hard when, you know, people, when you hear other people talk about it, they just assume that everything is um, bad that comes from the Bible. But I I really appreciate your guys' candor and your talk and how you said, like, the Bible is a good thing if you use it right or you're using it to better yourself not to enforce that onto other people or to use it as to terrorize people and i think it's another example of you know you have a bunch of different people interpreting it and if you don't have someone that you know can guide you in the right way you can have tragedies like this happen and it's funny a lot of people use the bible to promote their hate and foolishness but I call it a bunch of malarkey because basically Bible, if you look at the Jesus I believe in, you're going to love everybody. So anyways, I just wanted to say that I appreciate that um, candor and uh, very tragic, uh, very tragic story. Never had heard of that before. I'm kind of a little history buff myself, so I like to research all kinds of different stuff. But yeah, this is one I actually have never heard of before. So uh, anyways, good episode. Um, thanks again, guys. I try to tune in every week. Have a good day and go crap in your hat. There you go. Mm. So it's it's nice to hear from somebody who isn't coming at us for the way we talked about things because I I we don't want to offend people. We're just that's not what we do. However, you know, I, I, sometimes it happens. I'm the same mind of, of her, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not. I to me, like Christian bashing is is right up there with. Jewish bashing or Muslim bashing, you don't do that, right? Like there, there's a lot of good in all of those and you can't, you just can't pay attention to the people that are bastardizing it for no. pa- for power and corruption. Yeah. So I think what she said was, was great. Exactly. And uh, we hope your cold feels better and, uh, yeah. you know, Cape Sable Island. Did she say she was listening, eating lobster poutine? I don't know. With the cold? <laughs> yeah. Did you taste it? <laughs> I love lobster poutine. It's amazing. Have you ever had? Uh, if you, if you can't I think remember, I may have. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, you probably did then. I'm gonna have some real poutine this week. Yeah, that's right. Because you're on your way to Montreal. On the way to Montreal tomorrow. If there's another city in Canada that I would live in, mm. it would be Montreal. But you've never been there. I've never been there. I know. <laughs> I've read so much about it, and the culture there. It's just so attractive to me. I don't know what it is. I just would love, because you get sort of the whole experience, the whole, you get the Francophone experience, you get the Anglophone experience. I find that Montrealers have a real joie de vivre. Yeah, exactly. always had such a good time in Montreal. Exactly. Let's uh, hear our next voicemail. Hey, Mike. Hi, Matt. It's Denise Walker calling. I live in Alberta now, but I am a uh, newfie, and I just returned from three weeks. Uh, in Newfoundland where I discovered that you had released the podcast about the tsunami. I know a lot of people have already called in from Newfoundland 
and you may have your uh, critical mass of Newfie-accented voicemails less, so you may not play this on the show. But in any case, I figure I'd call in. I am from a little town on the Buren Peninsula. Like, it rhymes with urine. It's that bird. Um, on the Buren Peninsula, called Mortier. And uh, we are literally one community over from where the tsunami memorial um, is. And where it's in Port of Bronx, which you mentioned in your in your podcast episode. Um and uh, our region was devastated. And what people need to remember is that Newfoundland wasn't a part of Canada at that time. And uh, so we were dependent on our own economic viability. And it was about a decade after the Battle of Beaumont-Denel, where Newfoundland lost literally an entire generation of young men. And our future was forever altered because of um, our participation in the First World War at that time. And then those that were survived and came back and rebuilt, um, a lot of them had their livelihoods washed away in the tsunami. So it was a major historical uh, for Newfoundland. Um, in any case, I love my area. If you have a chance, all the listeners, check it out. It's a beautiful piece of our country, the Bureau Peninsula, the Avalon Peninsula of Newfoundland. Um, and I just want to say thank you for all you guys do. It's a great show. Love it. Proud to be a supporter of it. And on that note, go take a squat in your oil slicker, boys. Bye and thanks. <laughs> That's funny. And Buren. Okay, so Buren Peninsula. And I think I actually knew that, but my brain didn't clue into that. Anyway, Buren rhymes with urine. There so, you go. So there you go. And I also learned understand Newfoundland. Understand Newfoundland. Not Newfoundland. Understand Newfoundland. Yeah, who calls it Newfoundland? Oh, oh British lot, people. A lot of people do. But it's uh, Newfoundland. It's Newfoundland. <laughs> yeah. Well, well. If you're from the East Coast, you just call it Newfoundland or Newf Newfin. You don't even pronounce the D. A lot of us in Nova really? Scotia, I remember calling it Newfoundland. Newf Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Like Toronto is Toronto. Toronto. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much thank for you your for voicemails. Call. And uh, I really, we mentioned it on the show, but I still want to go to Newfoundland. It is the only province in Nova Scotia. Er, it Nova is the Scotia. only province in Canada that I have yet to visit. And mine was so long ago, I'd like to see how it's changed. Exactly. So let's go to Newfoundland, Matthew. That the would rock. be... It, well, hey, you know, if someone wants to put on a true crime convention in Newfoundland, we'll go. That would be cool. That would be very cool. True crime in Newfoundland. You heard it here first, folks. We live like kings in Newfoundland. <laughs> yeah, I would love it so much. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Alrighty, on to Patreon, and uh, this week we start with, oh my goodness, this one is from Andrew Shepard. Andrew Shepard, and I don't know where Andrew Shepard is from. He's, hmm. he's from Boston. From Boston? Yeah. Well, interestingly, he's paying for uh, his patronage in one pound. Interesting. So maybe he is somebody who was against the Tea Party and continues to use, he lives in Boston. Or maybe he's in Boston, the UK. Is there a Boston in the UK? Of course there is. Oh, well, look at that. <laughs> Look at you saving yourself. 
That's funny. It's so, in it's in Lincolnshire. Okay, in Lincolnshire. Yeah. In nice. So, so he's from Boston, Lincolnshire. There you go. <laughs> you might be right. Who knows? Anyway, Adam Andrew Shepherd. Andrew Shepherd. What do you think that Andrew Shepherd does in Lincolnshire? He uh, runs the locks. The oh, there's locks in Lincolnshire. Okay. I'm gonna assume there are. Okay. There, are there locks? My memory of the UK is there's locks everywhere. The locks everywhere. <laughs> okay, fair enough. There you go. Next up, we have someone who called themselves adverse, which is interesting. But uh, in the address, we have Landon David Richard Parsons from okay. Fraser Lake, British Columbia. Fraser Lake. Fraser Lake is up around uh, where my buddy Art lives. Okay. Um, Art Blomquist, he's uh, a longtime friend of Is mine. Is he related to like the horror movie? No, people? I don't think Blom Blomhouse. No, <laughs> I don't think so. But uh, Art lives in Indaco, which is just a little ways from Fraser Lake. And if you draw an X through British Columbia, boop, that's where he lives. Okay. Yeah, right at the X. But Fraser Lake is, is way up there. Um, what do you think that Landon David Richard Parsons does... In Fraser Lake. L-D-R-P. Mm-hmm. Lederp. Lederp. <laughs> Lederp. He runs the yearly Star Trek convention. Oh, well, there you go. Up there. I didn't know there was a Star Trek it's convention in Fraser Lake. The world's largest Star Trek convention is in Fraser Lake. I went to another... Thank you because of Lederp. I did go to a, a recovery-related convention in Fraser Lake at one time. Okay, that but, sounds more appropriate. But but I didn't go to a Star Trek one. Yeah, largest, world's largest. Well, there you go. 22 well, million people. Thank you very much. Next up, we have a guy named Larry McDonald. Larry uh, McDonald. I wonder if he's related to Lanny McDonald, who is the hockey player with the fantastic mustache from uh, Alberta. He's from Alberta, but anyway. I see my face glazing over here. Okay, yeah, because Matthew doesn't know anything about hockey. I know, uh, what's his name? Wayne Gretzky? Yes. <laughs> what's his name? <laughs> anyway, Sidney Crosby? Was he in Crosby, Nash, Stills? No, man? he was not. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um, what, where does Larry McDonald live? Where does he live? Yeah. Berlin. Oh, he lives in Berlin? Yeah. Was is los in Berlin? Mit, he's, mit not, he's not German. Though. Oh, okay. Well, clearly not with a name like Larry McDonald. Yeah. Although his family could have emigrated there years and years this, ago. This is true. Uh, what does Larry McDonald do in Berlin? Well, you know, Berlin, you take my breath away. Yeah. <laughs> so he's a CPR dude in Berlin because you heard that. Um, that in Ber so he moved to Berlin to do CPR on like. Because, because he heard the song Take My Breath Away oh. Berlin. So he moved there. Yeah. Okay. There you go. That's Take that's, my breath away. Oh. Yeah. So he's a CPR specialist. Nice. Like a paramedic or something? No, just a CPR. Oh, specialist. he just does CPR. He randomly CPRs people. <laughs> so, if you if you're if you decide to take a nap in a park, he he might just CPR you. Larry might come over and start giving you CPR. Yep. And sometimes, if you do CPR properly, you'll break a rib or two. So, 
Larry's been sued multiple times, I would take it. <laughs> Rim breaker, Larry. I don't know if the Germans are very litigious. Do they sue people? I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, I don't know enough I, about Germany's. I would assume not. I, yeah. I think they're sensible. Viva let it go. Yes. Yeah, I, when I hear of, like, Germany, I don't know why. I just thought of the uh, character in Super Troopers. Uh, who he and his wife would get excited whenever they were being pulled over by police. And uh, and then the one police officer said, who wants a mustache ride? And he puts up, puts up his hand. I do, I do. <laughs> now that song in my head. What's that? Super fun, super fun. Uh, oh yeah, a little bit of ABBA. Anyway. I love me some ABBA. That's it for our patrons Thank this you, week. patrons. Now, we don't have any donut money donors, but that's okay. We know you love us anyway. No shame. No shame. But but yeah. Secretly. If, if you feel like if you feel like sending money, that's good. <laughs> that would be awesome. Okay. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash dark poutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it uh, for this episode. We'll be back for part two next week. And uh, until then, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye. Goodbye. Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man, locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.